Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. If you missed last week's episode with Sarah McDougall, go back to last week and listen in. We had an amazing discussion from a faith perspective about how women need to be safe from abuse. So if you haven't heard that, I encourage you to go back. Sarah McDougall is an author, international speaker, and abuse recovery coach for women in the faith community who are healing from abusive relationships. Her passion is to lead women out of the wilderness into a wild and abundant life with Jesus. Welcome back on today's episode, Sarah. Thank you, Anne. We had so much fun last time. I'm excited about today, too. So I was really dying to ask you this. When it comes to codependency or co-addict or co-sex addict, how do you see in your community this term being used against victims? I think it's bunk. So one of the biggest things that I get on a continual regular basis is this whole idea from women who are trying to figure out which way is up. They've recently found out or had continuing disclosures that they are married to a sex addict, that their whole world is not what they thought it was. And then they go to therapy or their husband goes to therapy and comes home and tells them that the real problem is that they're co-addicted and they're part of the triggers and that they're codependent. And so they are equally responsible for his sex addiction as he is. And I can't tell you, maybe you already know, there are so many women who have an incredible experience of double abuse by therapists and therapeutic organizations when they get hit in the face with the idea that they are somehow supposed to share in the responsibility for their spouse's sexual addiction. There are so many reasons that is completely wrong, including the really basic fundamental reality that every adult human is responsible for their own choices. Period. Full stop. So you are not responsible for your husband's choices to be sexually unfaithful or visually unfaithful or mentally and emotionally unfaithful. And there are those who would push back on that and say, well, but wait a second. She didn't give him as much sex as he wanted. Okay. So what about the guy who's single? If you are in a faith community that teaches that sex is for marriage, so that means that singles are supposed to be celibate, but all of a sudden when you get married, you have some divine right to get as much sex as you want whenever you want it. And if your spouse doesn't give it to you, then it's just understandable if you cheat. That is not the way God presents self-control. We talked about the First Corinthians 6, I think it's 618 in, in the last episode, where sexual sin is actually a sin against your own body, not anyone else's. Although you may also sin against someone else's body in sexual sin if you choose to do so. But primarily, first and foremost, it's a sin against your own body. If your spouse is choosing to sexually sin, that's a sin that they are choosing to commit against their own body. Now, Beyond that, what about the person who their spouse is in a car accident? Is that where you were going to go? Yeah, that's the example I was going to say. Yeah, the wife is in a car accident and oh, okay, so now you can go have an affair? A husband who honors his wife by staying faithful when she becomes paralyzed or is incapacitated by illness or disease or has some physical ailment, we honor him. But if he just says, well, she is fully capable and just doesn't give me enough sex as much as I want it. So it's understandable that I cheated. 
no, that is a rationalization of sin. It's also abuse. Because we don't know if that's true. So number one, maybe she's having sex with them every day, right? Maybe that is the case. There's that. And secondly, maybe she's not having sex with him because he's yelling in her face, right? Because he's miserable to be around and she's afraid of him. There are so many reasons why she might not want to have sex with him and that are valid. And similarly, many men are saying this when they're getting what most people would consider plenty of sex, right? So nobody in the drug addiction world says, okay, here's a heroin addict. He's just not getting enough heroin. He's not getting enough heroin from his spouse. So he had to go get it off the street. And now we need to deal with that. Yeah. More drugs don't help. And if they're using their wife as their drug, so basically she is a receptacle for their abuse. You know, he's abusing her in the same way that he's abusing pornography. He's abusing sex with her for his own addiction for his own purposes. And she becomes part of the addiction, part of the drug. And, you know, that means that if she's not acting like an object, if she's not acting as someone in porn would act, then she's not doing it right. Weird. She wants connection. or Mutuality. Yeah. So I actually advise women when they're in this kind of situation, that in order to truly see whether or not they're sexually addicted spouse is going to put the work in to find recovery and healing, they need to not be giving sex. Yeah. Yeah. We recommend abstinence as well as a, as a boundary. Yeah. You can't try to control or manage someone else's sexual addiction with what you give and expect for them to find healing and rewire their brain. And that is actually what needs to happen when someone has become a sex addict. They need brain rewiring. And the only way to do that is from a perspective of abstinence. I completely agree with you on that. Now, a little history for those of you, I'm sure you guys have covered so much of this kind of stuff before in other episodes, but have you covered the history of the codependent co-addict philosophy getting drawn into like sexaholics anonymous or s anon we have from another woman's perspective but i would love to hear yours so please okay so the history as i understand it is that the codependent co-addict philosophy of treatment was really borrowed blindly and pulled over from alcoholics anonymous so aa had this co-addict philosophy where the spouse of an alcoholic is codependent and are trying to control the alcoholic i have some issues with that philosophy in and of itself, because in alcohol addiction, I think there's a lot of abuse that goes on as well and an abuse mindset. But sticking with our realm of sexual addiction, sexual abuse, no research was done on how sex addiction and spouses of sex addicts might be very, very, very different than substance, narcotics, alcoholics, and so on. So there is an incredibly amazing book called Your Sexually Addicted Spouse by Dr. Barbara Steffens and Marsha Means. So I'm glad you're familiar with it. I love her material. And she did thousands of hours of research on this and showing that the whole co-addict who's trying to control the addict and they're addicted to the addict, that it, it doesn't apply to spouses of sex addicts. So if you're a woman, as I have been, and Anne, as you've been in so many of our listeners here, if you've experienced this intense betrayal of broken vows and shattered trust that comes from discovering that the person you've loved and trusted is a sex addict, you 
have experienced an incredible trauma. And so the reality is that with sexual addiction, it is almost never just one disclosure. It's an ongoing trickle of discoveries and disclosures and lies and then other layers of lies and then things that have to do with money or time or work or friends or other people that you had no idea about. And your world unravels around you as if you had had like a hand knitted sweater and you just clipped a thread and started pulling and everything just falls apart around you. And it happens often slowly, repeatedly. So you're having your sense of safety shattered over and over and over again as these discoveries trickle out over time. And and I think people discount the abuse in between that, right? They might say, well, this disclosure was was upsetting. And then, and you know, a month later, another disclosure or whatever. They don't recognize that in between those two disclosures, there were lies and manipulation that were happening that also are causing trauma that are also part of that abuse. And that is what causes the trauma in addition to finding out that you've been lied to, right? So it's a whole yummy, delicious, disgusting basket of abuse that you are presented with. I think the hardest thing is that you have been in an abusive relationship, right? But you don't know it. And realizing that it was abusive is very difficult to come out of that fog and start putting the pieces together. It's a process. And I tell people that often the number one reason why women don't get out of abusive relationships is because they don't know that they are in one. Yep. I would agree. 100%. Yeah. And when they start realizing it, that's when the true, I think my trauma got worse when I realized how bad the abuse was for a while. It was like, whoa, I didn't realize how bad my situation and how unsafe it was. So a friend of mine, actually, when I had just become a single parent and I was still trying to make sense of all the half-truths and the outright lies and which one were switch and people I'd been isolated from that actually knew truth and so on and so forth. And a friend of mine gave me a copy of Dr. Stefan's book, Your Sexually Addicted Spouse, and she wrapped it in like brown paper cover so that nobody would see it. And no offense to Dr. Stefan's, but the cover on that book is just awful. She needs a new title and a new cover and I would promote the heck out of it. But I always feel like I just compulsively need to apologize for the cover. So a friend of mine had given it to me and I let it sit in the bottom of my dresser drawer underneath a bunch of stuff for probably three or four months. And I finally pulled it out and my parents had my kids and I was home alone for the weekend and that book put me in bed. I described it as hooking onto a fire hose and downloading my previous 12 years of trauma in a sitting. And I ended up reading it over two or three days. I had to get up. I had to stretch. I had to lie down on the floor. I had to go take a hot bath to loosen my muscles. My entire trunk, my core, my muscles seized up. I ended up having to go to physical therapy afterwards because the physiological response to the fact that I could relate to some aspect or multiple ones in every case study in that book was psychologically and emotionally and physiologically overwhelming. And I realized that I had such a visceral negative reaction to therapists telling me, well, you know, you're kind of codependent on this. You're just trying to control him. And I couldn't articulate to them why they were wrong. I just knew they were so wrong. And that book gave me the 
vocabulary and the understanding, the terms to be able to really articulate that. And so what I realized was that I had gone through like a carjacking and if you get carjacked, you're going to compulsively check the back seat before you get in because you want to get back to safety over and over and over again. You might do that for 10 years. That doesn't mean you're trying to control the hijacker or the carjacker rather. That means you're trying to make sure you are not voluntarily or blindly placing yourself in harm's way again. That is actually a healthy response. Here's the thing though, Anne, and this is a beef that I want to throw out there. You can tell me what you think. I want to know what you think on this. I believe that a huge category of the literature that we have on what is considered to be healthy marriage actually sets women up for swallowing this whole codependent, co-addict kind of thing when they are with a sexually abusive spouse. For example, every man's battle. If you don't have sex with your husband at least once every three days, you are creating a problem for him and he can't be held responsible for his thoughts. Excuse me. What about every unmarried man out there that you say should stay celibate? Well, even books that are like how to communicate better for example, right? Like use I statements or whatever, like just simple books about communicating better with your husband. Even those, we become master communicators. We're very direct. We use I statements and everything, but that cannot keep you safe from abuse. Yes. What about the whole love and respect, the Eggridge's book? The whole idea that you owe respect regardless of what someone does or how they act or how they sin, you still respect them. And, you know, hopefully they get around to loving you too. Yeah. I know. It's like the patriarchy has decided that women are going to leave us. So we've got to tell them to stay in their lane. Yeah, it's awful. I want to like almost take all of the marriage books and communication books and sex addiction books and throw them out the window and only say, read the Bible and read why does he do that? Let's educate everybody about abuse first, because it seems like so many of the marriage problems, they don't know that there's pornography going on underneath and abuse going on. And it's really, really scary. I will tell you, I have yet to see a case where there were other factors of abuse and domestic violence for sexual addiction, uh, sexual abuse, pornography addiction was not a factor on some level. Me too. Same thing. My book is in editing right now. It's the premise of it is making a case for adding pornography to like the abuse checklist, the abuse checklist that the National Center on Domestic Violence has, you know, does he control your transportation? Does he do this? And one of them should be, does he use pornography? Does he lie to you? right? Those are really important. Let's talk about abuse now. Some people say, you know, is pornography a factor? I say it's not a factor. It's abuse in and of itself. Let's talk about that. Talk about how you came to that conclusion as well. A big part of that conclusion for me is just that I have yet to see an abuse case that doesn't have some sort of sexual deviance or dysfunction primarily centered around pornography. And I have yet to meet a person, a husband who is addicted to pornography, who isn't in some way abusing his wife. So as far as I'm concerned, in both anecdotal and professional experience, those two are inextricably tied together. Yeah, it is abuse. I mean, I'm at the point where I don't even want to say they're tied. I want to say it is abuse in and of itself. When someone uses porn, they are abusing their wife, period. And 
they're abusing other people, like we talked about in the first episode. Secondly, they're also going to have these comorbidity factors, lying, manipulation, and those in and of themselves are also abuse. Yes, they are. And they're creating an ongoing unsafe environment for their spouse and their children. Right. Yeah. Let's go back to these communication books or marriage books or other things. So a lot of women don't know that their husband is using porn. Okay. And so they think, oh, let's go to couple therapy or I'm going to get these communication books or we're going to go to this marriage retreat or whatever. If they don't know, but they're suffering the consequences and they're, they're receiving the abuse, even if they're not aware of it, how can we help educate people in general so that women aren't unknowingly being abused? I'm just thinking if, if my husband hasn't told me he's watching porn, how do I know he might be? Right. Well, and what I say to women is, If you see lying and manipulation, if you've got a lot of anger going on, if you have something and you feel like it's just not quite right, don't say, well, it's not porn because my husband would never do that. Consider, hmm, all of these are these comorbidity factors. They're almost symptoms. If you haven't caught your spouse watching porn, some women walk in or accidentally, but you know what? Some women can be married to someone for decades and never actually observe them in sexual infidelity, and they may still be highly, highly addicted to pornography or even be sexually unfaithful in real life. The thing is, with today's internet smartphone world, the technology for pornographic release is in your pocket two clicks away at all times. It's right there. So just because you've never found dirty magazines or your husband doesn't bring home X-rated DVDs does not mean that he's not a porn addict. So if you're wondering, like things are just not great and I don't know what's wrong. If someone isn't openly watching porn, but they have a lack of empathy, if they can just check out and stonewall you, when you're crying or hurt over something, if everything becomes your fault, if they have secrecy, if they're lying to you, you catch them lying, or you just know things, they're not telling you the truth, you don't even know why. If you have money that disappears and there's not full disclosure with finances, if they tend to be addicted to their electronics, if there are gaps in their time, like They've been saying that they've been working late and then you find out from some colleague at work that they actually haven't been. If there is a general disregard for people, property, a sense of entitlement and arrogance, all of these things are comorbidities with pornography addiction. All of them. Any one of them can be. Multiple ones together are strong indicators that someone is filling their mind with pornography. Flashes of anger, unexplained irritability, cyclical behaviors. And when I talk about cyclical behaviors, let's just say you have someone who, let's say in the faith community, they get really convicted about something. And then like six weeks later, they're on to the next new thing. They decide they're going to get healthy and start exercising. And they seem really self-controlled for a little while. And then it's all out the window. They're binging out on everything. Um, They're eating late at night. They're eating junk food. And they're back into some addictive cycle. Those are addictive behavior patterns. 
And for the victim in this scenario, for them, it's the addictive cycle. For us, it's the abuse cycle. Yes, but I kind of tend to avoid using the term the cycle of abuse because it's all abuse. There is no honeymoon. No, it's grooming. In fact, we just created a new infographic on quote unquote the abuse cycle. And instead of having the honeymoon phase, I called it the grooming phase because that is just another part of the abuse. I agree. Yeah. And so, you know, Julie Owens, who is a domestic violence expert across the country, she calls it manipulative kindness. So anytime they're being nice to you, it is not, so, you know, we always talk about like the Jekyll and Hyde. Dr. Jekyll doesn't have an evil twin. He is the evil twin because he's the one that gets you to drop your guard. There is no true love in an abuse situation. There is no honeymoon where it's actually genuinely real. So what I say is that it's actually you're living in a vortex and you feel like everything is swirling and off balance all the time. And it often starts with buttering you up. And when you're getting buttered up, it's really because you're just getting ready to get burned. So you're buttered up, not because they love you, but because you're getting ready to fry. And yes, you are buttered in order to be burned. The buttering up phase is like the what traditionally they would have called the honeymoon. And so that's when there's like the gifts and the love bombing, except it's not love. It's just manipulative kindness. It's fake deceptive kindness. And there's always strings attached. And then if you point out anything that like didn't follow through right, or something happens, they flip a switch and then it's burn. After that, you have a blast, you know, arguments, frustrations, it can be passive aggressive, or you're walking on eggshells, or there's a verbal lashing out. And so when you're getting buttered up, you feel hopeful and loved. When you're burned, you feel betrayed and heartbroken. When you're getting blasted, you feel worthless and self-doubting because if you point it out, it escalates and you start second guessing and questioning yourself. And at times it may escalate into battering. So we've got buttered up, burned, blasted, and now battered. And this is an intensified version of being blasted and it can get aggressive physically or sexually, threats of harm or suicide. This is the point where they say, oh, he snapped. No, he didn't. He'd been buttering up, burning, and blasting prior to this. And battered is where you start to feel scared and small. Then, if they know they've gone too far and they're deciding to go back into buttering you up because you have been pushed too far, they may apologize or cry or make promises and insinuate that the behavior was your fault. And that's the begging and blaming phase. So then you feel obligated to forgive and selfish for having wanted more. And at that point is when they bring you flowers. I call it the abuse vortex. So it's like the center of the hurricane, the eye of the hurricane, the center of the tornado, everything is swirling around you. And the thing with this is that they are not a linear cycle. They can happen in any order or no order at all. And All apparently good acts are their own form of abuse because they are deceiving you in order to get you to trust them in order to not stand up and give accountability. Yeah. In fact, in my scenario, before I understood the abuse and before I could reframe it with the correct framework, I thought that my husband was an amazing man and he was incredible and he was the best. And then every once in a while he would lose it. 
And then after I was able to recognize the abuse for what it was, I realized that he was a very manipulative, scary, harmful person all the time who wore an amazing mask. And that mask is what would fall off every once in a while. And so when I reframed it like that, I was able to see everything as part of the abuse. If we can go back to the cycle, although I agree it's more of a vortex for just a second and say they go to their CSAT sex addiction therapist, right? And things get better. And then they don't hear about a disclosure and things are pretty calm for maybe, let's say six months, right? The cycle, it's so long to them that they have a hard time recognizing that it is a pattern or a tornado or whatever you want to call it. But yeah. I agree. And, you know, I realized at one point that when I began recognizing that in my own history, when I first got married, you know, I was a pastor's wife. So when I first got married, there were a lot of things that took my focus as a ministry spouse, clergy spouse. But I realized that looking back on it, that whole butter, burn, blast, batter, beg, blame, butter up, that was probably a 12 to 18 month kind of thing, which made it really hard to pin down. By the time it was the end, it was down to like every four to six weeks. So it was like a constant boomerang whiplash kind of environment. And mine toward the end got down to, I would say, almost like every other day. It started getting so bad when he was arrested. I mean, there would be times when we, you'd go through all of those in a day, but the overall typical um, thing was just every few weeks. Sarah and I have talked about her coming back again another time, especially to talk about things specific to faith communities. I'm really excited. So stay tuned for that episode in the future. But today we're going to conclude with... The fact that we know that many women who are listening are currently in a relationship where her husband is either still exhibiting these abusive behaviors or he is in that buttering up or grooming stage and she can't really tell if it's real change or if it's just grooming again. So to conclude, what advice would you give for women who are listening who are feeling really depressed, I would say, and listening to this, thinking that maybe they did have someone who was making changes and now they're not so sure and they're nervous and they're scared. What advice would you have for them? Oh, you know what? My advice in that kind of situation would be, well, there's a few things I can think of. Even if you're in a position where you seem to be facing where the only option available to you is to grieve what you thought you were building in your marriage and that you are wondering if you're going to have to accept that this is not going to work, that does not have any reflection on who you are and how valuable you are as a woman. One of the biggest things that I think women who are spouses of sex addicts struggle with is the internal damage that it does to us and who we are, who we think that we are and how valuable we think that we are because of our husband's or ex-husband's addictions. And one of the things that I have learned along this very hard road that we all hoe here, and that is that because God created each of us to be responsible for our own choices and our own decisions, 
even if this ends up being the death of your dreams and you end up facing the grief that comes from the betrayal and it doesn't get better the way that you might have hoped for it to, that you are still an incredible and amazing and strong and resilient daughter of God. And that there is still an incredible future ahead for you, even if it doesn't feel like it right now. And I say that because I have been in that moment and wondered what was ahead and felt completely bereft and abandoned and betrayed and shattered. And on the other side of it, I can see how God has led in rebuilding and restoring every step of the way, even though it didn't look like I thought it would. And I know that if he has done that for me and he's done it for others, that he can do it for you too. Yeah. I think it's so scary for victims to face the abuse head on because there's two unsafe scenarios, right? The first unsafe scenario is I'm in an abusive relationship. The second unsafe scenario is maybe divorced, right? Both of those are not good. And it is a very difficult place to be. The answer is, though, that one of those difficult and painful truths will lead you to safety and the other will not, right? So facing it means I don't know whether or not I'll be divorced or not. I need to start moving towards safety. And if we can make safety our goal rather than divorce or rather than, you know, ruining our family or whatever thought we might have about what's going to happen to us, if we can make safety our goal and start working towards safety, then if we end up divorced, it will be as a result of our seeking for safety. And it feels a lot better that way than it does that I just have to get divorced because I don't have another option. You're moving towards safety. You're moving toward peace. Yes, peace and safety and stability and strength. And what I have seen over and over and over again is that the women that end up facing this formidable and an unbelievable set of choices discover that they are way stronger than they ever thought they were. And when you look at it as, you know, like you said, seeking safety, but also here's another way that I like to look at it, and that is loving well. See, loving well means that if you love your husband, you want salvation for him, right? You want him to be the kind of man that God has called him to be, including in his character and his sexuality and his thought life. Allowing yourself to stay where you are letting him sin against you with impunity is not good for his character, just like it's bad for your safety. So removing yourself from that in order to love him well by holding him accountable to the standard God has set, not you, 
is actually the best possible thing. And oh my goodness, that just makes me think of all of this material that I have on narcissism and how narcissists and extremely selfish people only respond to consequences, not to what we traditionally call grace. And we could talk about that a very long time at another point. It's a whole different subject. But yeah, loving well means holding them to the standard God has set of honesty and purity. And that's God's standard for us as well. He's saying, this is what I deserve as God, and this is what you deserve too. And we will not accept anything less. Sarah, you are brave and amazing, and I am so excited to get to know you and so excited to have you on the podcast. So after we get off today's episode, I'm going to ask Sarah, send me a list of all the other things that you want to talk about. Listeners, if you are like, hey, I wanted Sarah to talk about this or that or whatever it is, please either email me at ann at btr.org or go to the website btr.org and comment on these episodes. Let us know what else you want us to cover. But for right now, those are the two things I'm interested in, Sarah. The narcissistic perspective, how love, service, and forgiveness will not motivate someone in that mindset. And secondly, what this is looking like in faith communities and how we can help our faith communities understand the horror of abuse and how to combat it. That sounds awesome. Let's do it. Thank you so much for coming on today, and I will talk to you soon. Our fall lineup for Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group sessions is on our website, btr.org. We have so many women who write to us on Facebook or email us and tell us that Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group has been their saving grace. You can go to any session that you want to at any time. Some women go to a session a day. Some women go to multiple sessions a day. It's available all the time so that any abuse episode you have, any disclosure, anything that happens, you can immediately talk with women who totally get it, who can validate you and help you make sense of what happened. The worst thing is when you have an abuse episode or something like that and you call your mom or you call your friend or you go into your pastor or your clergy and you try and tell them what happened and it doesn't go the way that you thought it just is like they don't get it and then you feel harmed even more that's never good so betrayal trauma recovery group is multiple sessions per day in order for you to have the support that you need in an ongoing basis If you're not a group person, which some people aren't, we also have individual sessions available with a live betrayal trauma recovery coach. You talk with them live online so you see their face, they're on the computer, you don't have to worry about childcare, you don't have to worry about leaving your home, you don't have to get dressed, you don't have to wear a bra. You can come and be safe with women who love and care about you and we understand because we've been through it so we are your tribe we are here for you please check out the individual sessions and the betrayal trauma recovery group at btr.org those of you who donate to enable me to continue podcasting thank you for those of you who have not yet set a recurring monthly donation please go to btr.org, scroll down to the bottom and set your recurring monthly donation today to continue to take this message of hope and peace to women throughout the world. And if you haven't already and you're so inclined, please rate this podcast on iTunes or your other podcasting apps. Every single rating helps isolated women find us. And until next week, stay safe out there.